listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. In the days of the aftermath of the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, I don't know if y'all remember that. That was seven months ago, if you can believe it, in our very own District of Columbia. There was a photo that went viral. It was a photo that was taken after the insurrection at midnight that night. It was a photo of a congressman, a representative from the state of New Jersey. His name was Andy Kim. Andy Kim of New Jersey. The son of Korean immigrants, Representative Kim can be seen on his hands and knees, gloved and masked while picking up trash and cleaning off trash of the floor of the Capitol Rotunda. He did that from about midnight to 1.30 a.m. He cleaned up the rotunda and then cleaned up the adjacent rooms next to it before going back into the halls of Congress to finish voting until 3 a.m. that night. It was a powerful image, an image that got picked up by all the media and social media, and I've been pondering this week, what was it exactly that drew people to that photograph? Well, on one hand, there's obvious power in seeing someone with power themselves, with status, with clout, doing some menial task on their hands and knees, cleaning up. It's powerful to watch people with power serve, Yes, but as I also thought about the photograph this week, I think that part of the power of that photograph was in the power of contrast, because some photographs really stand out because of what's happening in the situation and what that person is doing. It was Representative Kim's posture of gentle service against the backdrop of invasive violence that had taken place hours before it. A violence that didn't yield to instruction or command. A violence that shattered windows, broke doors, wreaked havoc. A violence that was, for many, justified in the name of a Christian God to take a zealous stand for supposed righteousness. It was Representative Kim's posture of service against the backdrop of dishonesty, of arrogance, of power grabbing that led to the events on that day. I think of the visual image of Jake Angeli, uh, the, the guy with the bare-chested Viking hat standing at the podium of the Senate floor. But even deeper than that, I think that part of the power of that photograph was Representative Kim's posture of gentle service that was cleaning up after his enemies. The very enemies of the government and of the Capitol He was cleaning up their mess. It wasn't lost on many the image of a son of Korean immigrants cleaning up after the mess of a white supremacist insurrection. The contrast was painful, but it was deeply powerful as well. Here's the thing. The power and posture of loving service in the world is a direct confrontation to the power and posture of violence, of pride, of malice, of selfishness, of rage. It is the power and the posture that Jesus has left to us as his people. A people like you and me who by so many forces are always being pulled towards violence, towards pride, towards self-gratification, towards malice, towards selfishness, towards rage. And we're not just pulled by that from one side of the ideological spectrum either. But the classic Christian practice 
taught by Jesus through the ages that stand against the spirit of the ages and trains us for a different way is the practice of service, servanthood. For the last two weeks, we began two weeks ago, I began preaching to you. I knew what I was going to preach on the first week, but after that, I didn't know. (laughs) I've taken a journey, and you've taken it with me. Two weeks ago, we focused on the practice of prayer and community, how we pray for one another. Last week, we focused on the practice of solitude, being alone, uh, and how that relates to being together, how it affects community. What we said is you can't separate your inner life from your outer life. We said that Jesus talks about and models for us what the inner life should look like. Deep communion with the Father, in solitude, away from the demands of the crowd, listening to the divine whisper. We said that nestled in between Jesus' action in community is solitude and prayer. That's how he prepares for the work. That's how he seeks comfort in the trials of the work. And that's where he goes after the work is done. Everything that I say today as we lean into the outward-facing posture of Christian faith needs to be connected very intimately with what I've said over the past two weeks. Because otherwise, it'll, it'll just sound like work, work, work. That's not what I'm trying to say, even though the Christian life is a grind. Even though Jesus has given us plenty enough to do. But it should not be mere activism. It is activism rooted in loving communion with God. Henry Nouwen says the fundamental shape of the Christian life is from solitude with God to community with God's people to service to and for all people. That's the path of formation, and you need to hold it together. Solitude with God, community with God's people, service to and for all people. And so today we lean into that outworking of the faith because the Christian community and Christians themselves are to be marked by familial, mutual service of one another as the intimate family of God and remarkable service outward to surrounding neighbors, all neighbors, even neighbors that would oppose the Christian faith. Today we're going to look at the character of servants and the the practice of service. The character of service and the practice of service. So first, the character of service. The book of Romans that we are in today was written to an early and diverse group of Christians in the ancient city of Rome, ethnically and culturally Jewish Christians, ethnically and culturally Gentile Christians, attempting to work out how to live together in a family in a world that had so long divided them from one another. And for that, they needed a common story to live by. They needed a faith to hold on to together that was rooted in the good news of Jesus and was rooted in the fact that they were brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. But also to accomplish this beloved community, they needed a core set of practices to commit to. Because unity in a community is not possible merely by common beliefs. Just preach the gospel. Unity has to be based on a common set of practices in the way of Jesus. If you're going to follow in the way of Jesus, you have to learn the practice of service. At the beginning of this chapter, Romans 12, verse 1, Paul says, present your body as a living sacrifice. See, love is learned in the body just as much as it is learned in the mind. Jesus didn't love us just by teaching us. He presented his body as a living sacrifice for us and gave to us to imitate him the model of servanthood. And everything that Paul says in this passage, we're not going to be able to cover every single line in here. But everything is so obviously colored by the life and model of Jesus Christ. 
Elsewhere, when Paul talks about humility and service, like he does in Philippians 2, he talks about Jesus. And he says, Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning, Jesus was not about the pecking order and power-grabbing ways of the world. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. On the same night that Jesus was betrayed, you'll remember he took uh, a towel and wiped it around his waist. He got a wash basin and he washed his disciples' feet. Everyone remember that story. It is a, a beautiful image of Jesus the servant. Well, after he does that, his disciples start getting into a fight, which is typical of them. And you know what they start fighting about? They start fighting about which, which among them is the best. <laughs> I mean, the fact that they would do that after this is just crazy. But Jesus hears what they're doing, and he tells them this, and I think it's so significant to understand what I'm talking about today. He says, listen, y'all, I'm going to give a colloquial translation. He said, here's how the world works out there in the nations. Kings, they have kings, and those kings exercise lordship over people. They dominate people. They're the people of high status. Jesus says, it should not be so among you. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. And Jesus says, all right, say you're at a restaurant, right? You're at a five-star restaurant, and someone's sitting there, and someone's serving that person sitting there. Which one's better in the ways of the world? Obviously, it's the one sitting at the table getting served. But Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. I am among you is the one who serves. Jesus' self-description of himself, his understanding, his self-identity, is that of a servant. You and I have been introduced to many Jesuses over recent history, haven't we? We've been introduced to Jesus the Conquistador, who comes into a place and demands conversion or else. We've been introduced to Jesus the Cowboy, who will not be disrespected and is ready to duel. We've been introduced to Jesus the Culture Warrior, ready to take over. Jesus the Cool One, who is quite marketable and slick. Jesus the Macho Man. In fact, we have a whole generation of people who are just done with Christianity because they've either been a part of communities or watched communities that only seem to raise up little kings and tyrants instead of humble servants of all people. But Jesus, the real Jesus, he is a king, that's true, but he's a servant king. He's a wounded king always and forever. And in fact, as I began thinking about it this week, I began thinking about this word servant and thinking about how the original community of Jesus embodied that. And I was struck by this fact, something I had never realized before, if, you, if you'll let me do a little bit of Bible study for you, all right, on this word servant. I went to the rest of the New Testament letters, and I began to see how those original disciples of Jesus described themselves. And wouldn't you know, the book of James, James says, I'm James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the book of Jude Jude says, a servant of Jesus Christ. Peter, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation, the angel came to John, who was Jesus' servant. And of course, every single letter of Paul, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ. And you may think this is just trivial, but I think it's fundamental. It's fundamental to how Christians identify themselves. We are servants. We're servants. I want to walk through these characteristics of servanthood, and I'm going to summarize them like this. The characteristics of servanthood here are integrity, humility, and tenacity. 
all right? Integrity, humility, and tenacity. Paul says, first, integrity. Paul says, let uh, love be genuine. Let love be genuine. That word genuine that Paul uses is literally a construction of words that says, without play acting. As in, don't love for the show of love. Play acting in service means you're wearing a false smile while you serve and while you love. While you inwardly resent those who you're serving because you don't actually think they're deserving of your service. Jesus all the time had very harsh words for religious people and religious leaders who were like whitewashed tombs. On the outside they did everything right, but inwardly they were full of pride, full of arrogance, and full of selfishness. Think of a time that someone was technically doing something for you, but you could tell quite obviously that either they didn't want to be doing what they were doing or they didn't actually think you deserved it. Genuine love is service that actually believes the one we are serving should be served and deserves the service we are rendering. Paul says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. To serve with integrity in the world means to not serve the cause of evil in the world. It is refusing to believe that the ends justify the means. Meaning, we don't believe that you can lie and cheat your way down a road just to get to a place of justice for somebody else. Meaning, you can't enable or tolerate abusive leadership inside or outside the church just because they're gifted people. Just because they're bearing fruit in ministry. Service has to hold fast to what is good. This verse sounds so basic, right? (laughs) Don't, Don't like what's evil. Do like what's good. But it's very important because constantly we are tempted to make moral compromises for the sake of convenience or for the the sake of keeping peace. But true community and true service is built around the truth of what is good and what is beautiful and what is evil and what is destructive. And that's going to become an important grounding for us as we talk about in a few verses the love of enemies and the the love of those who mistreat us. Paul says... Be constant in prayer. An integrated life of service is a life of constant prayer. You see, in this verse, there's such an intimate connection between the inner life and the outer life, isn't there? Nestled here. Prayer is not opposed to action. Loving action flows out of constant prayer. To the point where the actions themselves and the service that we give to others become a kind of prayer to God. How else could we be faithful to the scripture that says pray without ceasing? How can you pray without ceasing and also be doing stuff? You have to understand that somehow your doing stuff is is a prayer to God. In another passage on service, 1 Peter 4, Peter says, When you serve somebody, serve as if you're serving out of the very energy of God. When you speak words to somebody, speak as if you're speaking the very oracles of God. There's this deep, integrated aspect of what service means in the world. The second characteristic of service is humility. Humility. One of my favorite verses, Paul says, Outdo one another in showing honor. The picture here is a picture of mutual competition. You know, Paul uses that whole competitive metaphor that we often find in the world, but he he subverts it. He's saying, here's the competition. Who can be the best at heaping honor on one another? It is such a generous vision of community and honor and love. It fights against so strongly any scarcity mindset. Because in so many communities, there's only enough honor to go around. 
And the honor is for the people who are of high status, who are of high authority, who, who know the most, who are the experts. Paul says, no, <laughs> no, there is enough love to go around. Like our Old Testament passage today, I decided to stay in the life of Elijah where he goes to the widow at Israel. I can't remember that word. What is the word? Anyway, where the widow is. <laughs> and, uh, and Elijah says to her, no, keep going back to the jar of flour. Keep going back to the jar of oil. There will always be enough. That is the vision of community here. There's always enough love to go around. There's always enough honor So everyone should be treated as the honored guest. In the economy of Jesus, there is no scarcity. We have to know that. Paul says, don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So much in our world trains us that to achieve greatness in this life is to escape lowliness, right? It's to escape menial tasks, it's to become the served and not the servants. It's, become, it's to become part of the elite and the wise groups of people, the cool people. This word lowliness, do you know what it means here? Paul's using it particularly. Lowliness means this. It means being of low social status and having the relative inability to cope with life's circumstances. Paul says you should make your friends those kind of people. We're always tempted to make powerful connections. Paul subverts it. He says, here's who your connects should be. Associate with the lowly. Christianity spread in its earliest days among the lowly people of the world. And when the Christian faith aligns itself with the cool, the rich, and the powerful, it has, for the most most times and in most places, led to grave compromises of the faith and grave syncretisms of the faith. It has become so hypocritical that neighbors eventually grow disillusioned and disgusted with the church. This is exactly what we're facing in our context today. People associate Christianity with judgmentalism, with coolness, with trying to be hip. And Paul says, associate with the lowly of the world. Humble service is to be enemy loving and enemy serving. Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. Give thought what to do that's honorable in the sight of all. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This teaching is so challenging, but it's so directly from Jesus himself. He taught his disciples this very same ethic, that to be his follower means to serve and love those who persecute, who mistreat. People will often wonder at this point, though, what about abusive people in your life? Well, I think that this verse has to be held together very tightly with the one that's come before us. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. The emphasis, the emphasis here is not that we are going to tolerate abuse and to enable ev- the furtherance of evil in the world. The emphasis, rather, is how we're going to respond ourselves to evil and abuse. Meaning, we are not going to abuse back. We're not going to curse back. We're not going to hit back. We put ourselves in a posture of nonviolent resistance and protest in the face of evil in the world. 
N.T. Wright says, When we refuse to take revenge, we deliberately rid ourselves even of the desire for revenge. We are taking responsibility, at least, for our own mental and emotional health. We are refusing to allow our future lives to be determined by the evil that someone else has done. It's bad enough that they did whatever they did. Why should they have the right to keep us in a bitter and twisted state? That's what Paul meant by not letting evil conquer you. We are trained in the way of revenge. We are trained in the way of retaliation in our world so often. Paul says, no, be humble. Know that God takes care of you. Know that God will vindicate you. Know that God will render final justice and judgment on the earth. You don't have to hit back. Another aspect of humility is that Paul says, service is to be emotionally attentive. Emotionally attentive. In one of the obviously beautiful verses of the New Testament, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Serving one another involves attending to each other's emotional needs. That means we create space in this community to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. To create space and hold the space for gratitude and celebration and feasting. New life, babies, pregnancies, new jobs, achievements, successes. It's holding space for that. And within ourselves, it's being humble enough to, wherever we are emotionally, it's being able to serve where someone else is emotionally and to hold space for that. Not only that, Christians should be known as the kind of people who know how to party in the streets of their city. When there is something to celebrate, when there's a party to be had, Christians should be those rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. You best believe that this Saturday during Chuck Brown Day, I'm going to be at Langdon Park rejoicing with my city, rejoicing over go-go music, all right? (laughs) Christian communities should... (laughs) But at the same time, there is this vision of mutuality and care to hold space for lament, for weeping, and for grief. When pregnancies don't come, when spouses don't come, when new jobs don't come, when there's death, when there's tragedy, the Christian community is to hold each other in that space. And the tension of Christian worship that Erwin brought out at the beginning of our time together is even when you come into the sanctuary, we know that there's people who come in full of doubt, sorrow, despair. There's people that come in full of gratitude and hope and joy. What does it mean to make space for both of those things at the same time? I was recently holding a dear friend who lost her husband recently, and she said that the first 36 hours after losing her husband felt like hell. She said, I thought and believed firmly that God had abandoned me and had abandoned my family. And she said, I was laying in bed. I couldn't sleep, just laying there, tossing and turning. And I came downstairs, and there were, two, there were just two friends on my couch. And all I did was just curl up next to them, and they held me. But they were there. They were there for me. And I said to her, that was Jesus for you. Hands and feet of Jesus holding the space of lament. That is the vision of Christian community. That is what so many of our neighbors are longing for. A community that could come alongside them in the place of rejoicing and a community that could come alongside them in the place of weeping. Paul says that's what service looks like. To, not, to refuse to be bitter at other people's joys 
and refuse to cancel or minimize other people's sorrows. The third aspect of service is tenacity. (laughs) I was sitting in the office this week with Ashley and Melissa trying to write this sermon, and I was like, what is this third word I'm looking for? It needs to be an itty word. Integrity, humility, tenacity. I like that. Tenacity is being determined. It's not losing your focus. Paul says, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. What you've got to understand is to be slothful is not just to be lazy in life. It's not just to not be busy. You can be busy and be slothful. Don't you know? You can fill your life with so many things except the things that are actually necessary in life. Jesus calls us to prioritize our time, to make time for one another, and to make time in the service of our neighbors. Because after all, fundamentally, we are to be servants. And Paul says, serve the Lord. Your service of one another is first and foremost a service that you render to Jesus as you follow him. Paul says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Service can bring us into such intimate touch with the brokenness of the world. And we often grow so discouraged when you go out there and try to serve people. You grow discouraged at the vastness of the need. And and you want to change the world. And amen, we want a world that's changed. But the scripture says that you are going to meet trial in the life of service. Service is a grind. But you are to rejoice in hope that there's a God who is making the world new. That there's a God that's making a world where the servant is the king. That Jesus is making all things new. That's where we're supposed to ground ourselves and how to be patient and hopeful amidst the grind. Service looks for needs and it meets needs. Paul says contributes to the needs of the saints through the giving of ourselves, our time, our money, taking other people into our home, which is what hospitality meant, providing a place of lodging, providing things that people need. This is the vision of Christian community. And praise God, it's such the vision of this community that I see lived out. So, the characteristics of service, integrity, humility, and tenacity. Now I want to look at the practice of service. What does it look like to serve in this way? What does it look like to serve with integrity? The command, of course, is to let love be genuine. Don't just play act in service. Here's the thing about service, and this is what Jesus often brought out, that service can be used to bolster our own sense of self-righteousness. And you see that all the time among people who do a lot of service. How do you distinguish between self-righteous service and true service? Well, I was reading this week, and I found this passage in the book, uh, Richard Foster's classic books, uh, Celebration of Discipline, all right? And this this is going to hit you upside the head, all right? I'm, I'm just going to warn you, all right? You're going to get slapped upside the head. I've already gotten slapped upside the head. Reading it, I'm about to get slapped up again. Listen to how he distinguishes it. He says, self-righteous service requires external rewards. It needs to know that people see and appreciate the effort. Self-righteous service seeks human applause with proper religious modesty, of course. True service rests contented in hiddenness. It doesn't fear the lights or attention, but it doesn't seek them either because it has the nod of divine approval, which is completely sufficient. Self-righteous service is highly concerned about results. 
It eagerly waits to see if the person served will reciprocate in kind, and it becomes bitter when the results of our service fall below expectations. True service is free of the need to calculate results. It delights only in serving. It can serve enemies as freely as it can serve friends. Self-righteous service picks and chooses whom to serve. Sometimes the high and powerful are served because it will ensure a certain advantage. Sometimes the low and defenseless are served because it will ensure a humble image. True service is indiscriminate. It has heard the command of Jesus to be a servant of all. Self-righteous service is affected by moods and whims. It can serve only when there is a feeling to serve. Moved by the Spirit, as they say. True service ministers simply and faithfully because there's a need. It knows that the feeling to serve can often be a hindrance to true service. The service disciplines the feelings rather than allowing the feeling to control the service. Self-righteous service is temporary. It functions only while the specific acts of service are being performed. Having served, it can just chill. True service is a lifestyle. It acts from an ingrained pattern of living and then springs spontaneously to meet human need. Self-righteous service is insensitive. It insists on meeting need even when to do so would be destructive. It demands the opportunity to help. True service can withhold service as freely as it can give it. It can listen with tenderness and patience before acting. It can wait in silence. That can be the service. Self-righteous service fractures community because in the final analysis, once all the religious trappings are removed, it centers about us. It's about the glorification of the individual. And therefore, it puts everyone around us in debt to us and can be one of the most subtle and destructive forms of manipulation. True service builds community. Wow. Do you ever notice this reality in your life, that serving people very well can be harder uh, for the people in your own home than the people out there? You ever notice that? When a child asks you for a snack or for a juice or for a diaper change, when your wife asks you to take out the trash, when a roommate says, hey, I have to leave for work, could you possibly do all these dishes that I made dirty? We often grumble and complain, don't we? But if we're at a place serving, if we're out there, if we're at the homeless shelter, we're cheery and compliant. We're like, how may I help you today? Please make your request known to me and I'll fulfill it. Why is that? Because inside our homes, we don't care about our image as much. We're fine just being ourselves. We're letting it all hang out. If we're serving at the shelter, we need to protect our image and our reputation. Serving with integrity is serving the same at home as you do abroad. (laughs) Serving the same at home as you do at the homeless shelter. It is being trained for service in the most intimate parts of our life. To encounter every need that someone has of you that day as an opportunity to serve, as an opportunity to follow Jesus. It's also a life rooted in constant prayer. We refuse to disconnect our outer and our inner work. We stay grounded in prayer and solitude, and it's at that place that we experience the divine knot of approval, and out of that place we can serve God before an audience of one. It's his approval that we chiefly begin to desire and live for. So that's how to serve with integrity. Those are some applications. How do you serve with humility? You hide. If you want to foster humility and service, the answer is to hide your works. Richard Foster says that our flesh whines against service. Our flesh screams against hidden service. Because we want to be recognized. 
We want to get the accolades for serving. Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Therefore I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Pursue acts of service, brothers and sisters, that no one knows about, that you don't even tell anyone about, and see what it does to your own heart. See how it frees you from the pecking order of life. See how it gets you freedom from being chained to other people's approval. Pursue lowliness. Build mutual relationships with people who are lowly who offer no social clout or connections to you. Jesus said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. The more we align ourselves in life and connect ourselves to the hurting and the downtrodden, the more we will find Jesus there. How do we live a tenacious life of service? How do we keep on keeping on? It's seeing needs and meeting needs. But to stay tenacious in service together, you have to accept the counterintuitive reality. To prepare to be together, to prepare for your outward work, you must be alone, right? you got to connect it to the previous two weeks. You have to escape from the demands. You have to seek communion with God. And out of that communion, you can come into community. Out of that communion, you can come into the joyous and free life of service. I'm sure it's been on many of your minds. You're like, I'm busy. (laughs) How much do I need to serve? I'm tired. I feel overworked. How can I serve more? I think there's two things. I think we have to interrogate where our exhaustion and anxiety is coming from in life. Because if you don't have rhythms of rest, of prayer, of solitude, and you aren't nestling that in the rhythms of your life, you are always going to feel like you're running on empty. you got to nurture your soul so that you can nurture other souls. But I think also that our passage is a word for everyone today. Everyone is to be serving one another and be serving the neighbors. Service is not optional, but is fundamental to the life of following Jesus and fundamental to the life of community. And that's why I chose the text from the widow today. Because the resource of Christian community is, 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 is not exhaustible. There's always enough service to go around. To, to be part of this community, though... You have to know it doesn't rest on each of us alone. We have to protect ourselves, yes. But also, the community does not truly flourish until all of us are involved either. We each have a call upon our life from the Lord to serve one another with zeal as if we are serving the Lord Jesus himself. There are many in here who are feeling over, like they're over-serving and on E. And there are some in here that the Lord is leading into a deeper place of service. And we are supposed to live this mutual life serving one another to allow each other the space for rest and and refreshment and empowerment. And as we do that as a community, we are following in the way of Jesus. We are learning the posture and power of servanthood on our hands and knees, picking up trash against the power and postures of violence, of self-gratification, against the pecking order of life into joyous service in the name and way of Jesus. That is the shape of formation that we've been talking about and have talked about for these three weeks. 
from our internal life with God, from communion with God, to community with God's people, to service to and for all. Amen. Amen. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.